Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara. And this week, special guest, fiction writer and essayist, Victoria Brown, who teaches in the English department at Rollins College in Orlando, Florida. And me, the knocker off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Bleecker Street, summer. Summer for prose and lemons, for nakedness and languor, <laughs> for the eternal idleness of the imagined return, for rare flutes and bare feet and the August bedroom of tangled sheets and the Sunday salt. Ah, violin. When I press summer dusks together, it is a month of street accordions and sprinklers laying the dust, small shadows running from me. And so goes the opening of the poem Bleecker Street Summer by this week's manifesto author, Derek Walcott. Great. Um, yeah, we're doing, we're doing Walcott, the muse of history. Uh, and we're recording from Bleecker Street. Um, yeah, this is actually the heart of Bleecker Street right here, the exact latitudinal and longitudinal and spiritual mm-hmm. nexus of all that is Bleecker Street is in the apartment of our producer, Alexandra Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> and um, our manifesto is going to be The Muse of History, um, a 1974 essay by Derek Walcott, and we are going to be pairing that with Mavis Gallant's uh, the late homecomer um, that ran in the New Yorker originally. It did run in the New Yorker, so yeah. If you mm-hmm. want to find it and read it, uh, it is online. Um, so, Derek Walcott, a poet, um, born and raised in Saint Lucia in the West Indies, um, a poet, uh, playwright, won the received the Nobel Prize in I forget which nineteen ninety two. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, about, uh, and we've talked about him before. Uh, in he our, came up in the Naipaul episode. In the Naipaul right? episode, yeah. He's, uh, uh. <laughs> he's sort of uh, uh, very philosophically different from, from Walcott and, and has sort of tangled with, uh, sorry, with uh, Naipaul and has sort of yeah. tangled with him in, in, in essays and, and, and in his poetry, uh, sometimes by name. Uh, Sometimes there's sort of illusions like uh, the wintry novelist uh, praised for his accurate <laughs> phlegm. Uh, it's my, uh, one of his descriptions of, uh, of Nightball. But um, this time we're just going to be sort of looking at him on his own. And the muse of history is very much a manifesto. It's a kind of complicated argument arguing with a, a particular notion of, of history and one's place in it and one's relationship to to where they're from, to... But the artist's place in it, right? Like uh, yeah. the, the place of the artist vis-a-vis history, I think more even than the, let us say, citizen or non-artist's place vis-a-vis history. Right. Well, and I think <laughs> I think for him that's where it begins, right? That, that, that's, hmm. that's the sort right. of, you know, the, 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 the culture 
um, is the bedrock. There's a there's from a, one of his poems, Hick Josette. Convinced of the power of provincialism, I yielded quietly my knowledge of the world to a gray tub steaming with clouds of seraphim, the angels and flags of the world, and answer those who hiss like steam of exile this coarse, soap-smelling truth. I sought more power than you, more fame than yours. I was more hermetic. I knew the common wheel. I pretended subtly to lose myself in crowds, knowing my passage would alter their reflection. I was that muscle shouldering the grass through ordinary earth. Commoner than water, I sank to lose my name. This was my second birth." Um, and that opening convinced of the power of provincialism, you can say that he's already going to be very different from, uh, <laughs> the, the, the that we discussed in a previous episode, but the muse of history right. starts with, um, and was it you, what is your, you teach, um, Wal- Walcott, uh, Victoria, just real quick. What is your relationship to him as a writer? So, Dirk Walcott just, I mean, he, he looms large, right? He and Naipaul are the two sort of gigantic figures um, who come out of the Caribbean um, uh, as, as writers, they, you know, and, and they've always had, um, right, you know, right up until the very end, a very sort of contentious relationship. So one, one writing for the folk, and of the folk and very proudly aligning himself with the folk. And that's, that's Walcott, as opposed to Naipaul, who took a very different view of history and, and wrote about the folk from, a, uh, from several removes, from his physical remove, from the Caribbean, from his sort of educational remove. Walcott remained of the people. However, that's not without its own complication, right? Because I think he kind of had a luxury to to be of the people, but also a kind of luxury of movement, right? That's not afforded to the to the, the very subjects he wrote about. But he also manages to cover that, if you will, because he's saying, well, yeah, but that's not what they want. That's not what they're doing. That's, you know, this is the position that I find myself in. Um, and, and this is the, the profession that I've chosen for myself. And these are the people I've chosen to write about. So whereas I can sometimes see him again, as having the sort of like luxury and privilege, but and privilege in the sort of old fashioned term of, of um, old fashioned use of the word privilege he he did you know through his talent he did manage right he could he could sort of stand aloft while at the same time remaining of the people it's very it's it's complicated but it's not complicated that's interesting though because you know not knowing walcott especially well and prior to phil bringing up his essay uh when we were discussing naipaul i only knew him as a poet i actually really wasn't aware of he had this, you know, a, a developed uh, writing oeuvre, oeuvre as a as an essayist as well that I really wasn't aware of prior to that. But I would not have thought of him, and I don't now think of him as being of the folk. It, that's a formulation that perhaps reflects, or my lack of uh, intuition of, of that position of like him being of the folk. I, I just 
that's not how I see it. Now, that might be a reflection of my ignorance of him, but it's uh, both in terms of the kind of language that he uses in the essays more than in the poetry. The poetry, and we'll we'll get into the heart of the manifesto right. in a second, but the poetry seems to range more in its linguistic style. And there's, uh, you know, I could see the kind of the poetry being of the people of the place. Um, but the essay does not strike me as folkish in its sort of, uh, in its attitude in terms of who it's trying to reach. You know, when I made the distinction yeah. earlier between um, whether this was addressed to artists or citizens, I read the the essay, The Muse of History, as being very much in the first order addressed to artists almost as like demigods of the creative spirit, yeah. you know? <laughs> right, and, and, there's, and we can talk about this a little later because it's later in the essay, but he sort of assumes that <laughs> the common folk are fine and don't worry about any of this stuff. Um, right. That, you know, like if you're a fisherman – this doesn't bother you uh, or rather right. like, you know who you are, you're rooted, but uh, maybe we should just sort of start talking about the essay. And it is dealing with a kind of central problem that he has. And he's, he's a mixed race author, right? He's got like Dutch mm-hmm. uh, heritage. He's um, black. He's uh, English, Dutch and African descent. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, there's a, there's a bit in the essay where he says, who in the new world does not have a horror of the past, whether his ancestor was torturer or victim? Who in the depths of their consciousness, conscience is not silently screaming for pardon or for revenge? And so on the one hand, you have this history, a history of slavery and colonialism, right, which is unavoidable. And on the other hand, you have the nature of the the new world itself, which is mm-hmm. beautiful, right? Um, physically beautiful there, and also which doesn't have a sort of kind of the trace of that history in terms of monuments, right? Edenic. Uh, yeah, it's it's right. Edenic. Uh, there's a poem uh, uh, that he wrote, writes air. Um, uh, which he wrote before this, uh, where he says, you know, there's too much nothing here. The jaws of this rainforest never rest, grinding their disavowal of human fa- uh, human pain, yeah. right? That, you know, this sort of torturous history is both extremely sort of present for him intellectually, but also in terms of the actual sort of physical space that the people are having, it is continually erased by just the nature of the the land and landscape. Um, right. And so well, I, I was going to interrupt you to just say that it's easy to sort of con- consider a place Edenic if you have the luxury to to leave that space. Right. If you're able to, you know, if I when I when I think about the, the Caribbean that I know and, and the people in the Caribbean who 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 I, I know intimately I don't know that they think of, and, and he does, I, you know, I will give him this, that he, he does address this in the essay as well, right? But the, the, the people who are in the Caribbean and not just of it, right, are not actively thinking of their space as Edenic, for sure, 
mm-hmm. right? When I, I'll, I'll, so when I read, so I read this essay once a long, long time ago, and then I was rereading it the first time in preparation for today. And I kept shaking my head and I kept writing, okay, like luxury, he's writing this for himself. He's just trying to justify his own, write his own sort of like artistic MO. And then I came to the end and I saw that it was written in 1974 and I exhaled. <laughs> like, oh, thank God. <laughs> right. Thank God. Because in 1974, right, the idea of uh, a West Indian literature, we wouldn't even say a West Indian literature anymore. And he continuously says, you know, West Indian, West Indian. We wouldn't even use that terminology today. You'd say Caribbean. Um, you know, my, my friends who are of the Caribbean don't say that they're West Indians. They say that they're Caribbean, which always sounds awkward to my ear, but it just, again, you know, because of, of, of where I fit in historically and my age. But in 1974, when he was writing this, the, the idea of a Caribbean body of literature was still very, very new. And I think Wilcott is trying, if we're looking at it from the perspective of it being written in 1974, he's trying to find a space, you know, he's just not justifying what he's doing, but he's trying to uh, contextualize where he fits into, right? What the work that he's trying to do, how he fits historically into the sort of like wider um, tradition of poetry, right? So that it was written in 1974, I think uh, there was a whole different set of, rules of interpretation for the literature, like in, in the now, than there was when he was writing this, which was absolutely necessary at the time. But, and, and, and of course the essay stands, the essay lasts, but maybe it itself stands as a monument to, to the evolution of the place, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, so the first, it's, there's six parts, or like five parts and a sort of postscript. Um, the first part sets out that problem, right? You have this history, and there's a kind of conception of history uh, that he thinks of as a sort of um, the way in which people can kind of get chained to themselves as understanding themselves through, through this um, vision of, like, a human, a creature chained to your past, right? That, like, mm-hmm. the the sort of brutal past of, of the Caribbean is, um, produces, and he, and he says, in New World, servitude to the muse of history has produced a literature of recrimination and despair, a literature of revenge written by the descendants of slaves or a literature of remorse written by the descendants of masters, right? Um, because this literature serves historical truth, it yellows into polemic or eva- evaporates into p- pathos. And then that sort of literature which is utterly chained to a sense of history and having to grapple with this history or answer to it in some way is uh, he differentiates from the truly tough aesthetic of the new world which neither explains nor forgives history right Mm -hmm. then the second section can I just pause on that for one second because I think like before going through it section by section there's something in that which is if you were to boil down the essay to a kind of core tension, I think it's contained in that. He's saying that there is, in the new world, both a kind of 
classical view, a classicist's approach to history, which aligns with the master's view of history. And then there's this revolutionary approach to history, which aligns with the descendants of slaves. And Mm -hmm. what he's saying, I think most provocatively in the early sections, is that neither one of those, neither the classicist or the revolutionary history is authentically new world because each of them in this kind of dialectic are they are attached to each other they both preserve this uh relationship to this fixedness of history in the case of the classicist it's a a kind of racial mythos and he's saying like those two views are the, the kind of classicist master view and the, the revolutionary descendants of slaves view are actually bound up with each other and sort of more fundamentally alike than either of them is related to this new world view of history. And then the rest of the essay, in a sense, I think is expounding on what is this authentically new world approach to history that differentiates yeah. it from those two. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's a, yeah, that's a really good distillation of it because the word like petrified, right, comes to mind when I think of what he's getting at in this first section as he, hmm. right, as he sort of indicts both the revolutionary and the classicist and saying, well, you're, you're, you're not going to be creating anything new if you stay in these kind of fixed modes of interpretation of, you know, this is, this is what we've come, this is where you've come out of and you refuse to sort of examine the, the now where you have arrived if you keep, if you keep having this sort of, um, reach back, right, to, 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 to some, to some existence that, right, didn't really stand still either. The thing right, that you're reaching right. for does not exist. It ceased to exist a long, long time ago, right? You're never going to be able to sort of artistically interrogate the space. Can you say artistically and interrogate? In <laughs> you, you absolutely can. <laughs> yeah. no, and he says, he says explicitly, right? These writers, he's talking about the classicists now, reject the idea of history as time for its original concept as myth the partial recall mm-hmm. of the race. For them, history is fiction subject to a fitful muse memory. You know, they, they have to make of history myth they, or they replace what for him is the authentic, uh, fluid history with a fixed mythic uh, past, a fixed right. uh, myth of history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in the second sec- section, he contrasts that with the great New World poets from Whitman to Neruda rejects it. They, says that he reject, they reject this sense of history. Their vision of man in the New World is Adamic. In their exuberance, he's still capable of enormous wonder, yet he has paid his accounts to Greece and Rome and walks in a world without monuments and ruins. Um, and so that sense of a... <laughs> Second Adam, who is um, alive to the vibrancy and possibilities of what exists without um, uh, without sort of um, without pure innocence, right? Without uh, a total sort of repudiation uh, of the past. He's paid his accounts to Greece and Rome, the poet carrying entire cultures in his head, bitter perhaps, but uh, unencumbered, right? That he's... um, uh, it's it's not just that the poet himself is generative, but sees that potential of kind of 
generative reality in in you know the the world that he sees before him um and so that's the second section which is very short and well then, the second section is very short but i have to tell you because i'm going to read a little part of the second section here for you yeah. toward the very end here right where he says what person I don't know if it's per se, per se, there's no accident, glorifies, is not veneration, but the perennial freedom. His hero remains the wanderer, the man who moves through the ruins of great civilizations with all his worldly goods by caravan or pack mule, the poet carrying entire cultures in his head, bitter perhaps, but unencumbered. I wrote after I read that, oh, what luxury, what balls. <laughs> Oh my God, that is so, it's so male. It's so, <laughs> I mean, I just thought it, there was a kind of, and I'm not disagreeing, but there's a kind of, of swagger to, to the, to his veneration, right? Of Neruda and of, who's the other one he mentions? Uh, he's right? comparing um, him to St. John. Whitman. A Whitman, yeah. In but he compares Whitman. him yeah. to, to Borges also, yeah. right? Yeah, like yeah. Borges yeah. to the poet St. Yeah. John Purse. Yeah. That's it's, funny because I, I was like, oh, I, I thought you were setting that up to say, oh, yeah, this, these lines are so great. No, it's going to be like, yeah, <laughs> no, I love no, it. No, I just thought, yeah. what? <laughs> but the luxury, and again, again, because, so I, I don't know how many times I'm going to repeat 1974. Again, I'm thinking of the time that this is written, right? I'm thinking of, you know, if I think about sort of But what's the particular poetry. maleness in the quality of that? I, I, and I think you're right, and I don't deny it at all and it is sort of swaggering but locate that for me if you will because i'm clearly too close to it to see it in the first order in that sense is it is it the it's just like the simple sense of venerating personal freedom unencumbered is sort of like domineering and presumptuous in a in a kind no. of no <sighs> no i'm thinking of what he, so what Walcott is describing is the sort of true freedom to examine your, um, to examine your, your, your world, your, your, your environment, right, without the sort of encumbrances of history, right? It, it, it assumes a kind of luxury or freedom to do this. And, who has that luxury? Who has that freedom? Right? It's, I think it's a very kind of, it's, it's correct, but it's also very narrowly given. And this can bring us back to who the audience for this piece is meant to be, right? Um, if, if he's writing this for, surely if he's writing this for young writers or writers who are of the, the Caribbean and you think, okay, I, I want to... I want to write. So where am I going to find my subject? What am I, then I can understand, okay, this kind of, um, this, 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 this language, you know, it's, it's the, it's the Sanya, his hero remains the wanderer, the man who moves through the ruins of great civilizations. Well, yes, that's all well and good, but who gets to move through the ruins of great civilizations with his pack mule? Not everyone. Mm -hmm. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's also going to be, it's sort of interesting because later he'll kind of, <laughs> distinguish between sort of unrooted sort of metropolitan cynics and like mm -hmm. rooted peasant people who, you know, work with the land um, and, and sort of side very firmly with those 
with you know his concept yeah. conception of like the you know the the rooted peasant people um right uh but, but he's talking about creating a new poetic right. sensibility of history and mm-hmm. i don't see how you could do that without being presumptuous the task yeah. itself is swaggering and and i do think it's important to to mention that like there is a tension between the sort of aristocratic uh or um the unencumbered element and the traveling with your worldly goods by caravan or pack mule you know the the, the sort of lordly sense that you could you could do this right and at the same time carrying entire cultures in his head bitter perhaps but unencumbered so you know it's the I guess the dynamism of it for me is in the way that it doesn't seek to escape worldly conditions entirely. It doesn't seek to declare the poet uh, completely cut off from all worldly concerns or from all inherited tradition, but is saying you know that the it's in your you you have access to everything in your head. Yeah, it's all your inheritance. You might be bitter, yeah. you know, it you might it might leave a bad taste, but finally it's yours to venture out into this new world and sort of it, not only yours in terms of your right, but it's the demand of the new world in the sense of this poetic historical sensibility as opposed to like how to live day to day in a particular place. But in the sense of this poetic historical sensibility that it's – that's what you have to do. Yeah, I, I, and I think there's something right about that, right? Like he's he's trying to write himself into – this is poetry too. You know, it's like, it's like Homer, Dante, Milton, Walcott, right? Um, right. And, right. you know, you don't do that without swagger. I mean, but, you know, you don't become Dante without swagger. Was it Dante mm-hmm. – um, I forget who put it, but like Dante in the beginning of the Divine Comedy, you know, with 90% of his greatest work still unwritten, has the gall to like list himself like fifth in the greatest poets, right, you know, right, right. And, <laughs> and, and was actually underestimating himself. He was being humble, you know, mm-hmm. um, like this, this swagger and also that kind of, you know, I've talked before about how like, you know, when I write like, when it's working, I have to feel this sense of just anarchic freedom, right? right. Like there's this whole constellation of things that I can draw on and that are related, you know, very much to what it, you know I'm deeply attached by, but that at that moment of creation, it's got to be sort of pure, untrammeled freedom, which is, yeah, which which has that kind of swaggering. Well. Right. And here's and here's the thing, right? He, he, he's writing this again in 74, but he grows up to become Derek Walcott or he writes up to become <laughs> Derek Walcott. So right. absolutely, right, absolutely, he, he, he is sort of, you know, he's writing his, his poetry and sort of like theorizing his work at the exact same time because there's no one else to, no one else is doing this for him. So I, I can hold those two, I can hold those two sort of interpretations easily right that he yes yes i do i read it and i think whoa there is some right there is some nerve here but yes because of of 
who he becomes and his faith in who he is at that point and, and the, the, the work that's ahead of him, right? He kind of he has to he has to take the stance. There's no one else, right? There's no one else taking the stance, and no one else has sort of trod this road, right? Uh, just no one else of the the region, yeah, right? Maybe Wilson Harris, who I see he, he mentions, is doing it at, at the same time, right? Naipaul, who's his his sort of you know lifelong coeval in terms of 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 talent and recognition, right? Is is doing something else, something he does not agree with. Um, hey, so, can you... Yeah, I can... Sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, tell I, me... I, see, I, all right, I, I don't want to get, like, totally carried away in this, but how would you define the distinction between what Naipaul is doing and what uh, Walcott is doing? Like, you're saying that they're coevals, but they're... Uh, Walcott has this uh, view of history and I think of of himself or yeah. perhaps actually where they're most similar. It might be in the ego, but uh, certainly in the <laughs> right, approach to right. history and the kind of poetic sensibility, there is this contrast, though uh, not more contrast is too mild. There, there is a, a, a pointed difference, an incompatible, irreconcilable difference. But I, I would curious how. Uh, you, Victoria, and you, Phil, would define that. How do you see that difference? I think it's, you know, it's, it's most evident in where they chose to write from. So Walcott remains rooted in the region. Even, you know, he teaches at BU. He's, you know, he's frequently, you know, he lives between Castries and St. Lucia and Port of Spain and Trinidad and and you know, Boston or New York, but again and again, he returns, right? He returns to the Caribbean. This is where his muse is located. Um, for, for Naipaul, he, 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 he couldn't, I don't know. He just had, it's not even that he had blinders on because I've thought about this quite a lot. He almost resents being from this place that he sees as a nowhere place, right? He talks about like nothing was ever created here. Nothing was ever, even even as he writes uh, House for Mr. Biswas is sort of like masterpiece that's set in Trinidad. Yeah. He's still not able to, th- there's a part of him that is so set on not being of this place, even right. as he writes Miguel Street, which is the ultimate sort of of uh, exploration of Caribbean street culture, and he does it brilliantly. There is a kind of, shall we say, self hate, <laughs> right? So, so the, the Caribbean is Naipaul's undeclared muse, certainly in the in the early work, right? Um, but it's a muse he doesn't respect. Naipaul uh, Walcott, on the other hand, I think very much respects his muse. But I think that Naipaul's narcissism and his self-hatred are inseparable. So, you know, he views the nowhereness of Trinidad as also being the great gift to him because it allowed him to make himself Naipaul, in a sense, you know? Like, I think he sees this as his opportunity to approach the world with a certain innocence. And, you know, obviously that's a denigrating view towards... Uh, Trinidad, but even with the house from uh, house from Mr. Biswas, right? Which is, you know, I I think in terms of uh, literary novels, 
sort of as perfect a kind of construction right. as as you can find. I mean, it's ju- it's as good as anything written in the 20th century, right? But yeah, but you'd have to have a certain sense of almost. Uh, you'd have to have a kind of hostile distance to recreate something that perfectly, if you know what I mean. You know, he has to remove himself in a way where he can be, uh, he can assume the omniscience over this place to recreate it so perfectly. Like, there is no taint of kind of, uh, yeah, you know, too yeah, human affection or anything like that in it. But there's so much loathing, right? There's so oh, yeah. much. Yeah. There's so there's so much loathing contained within as well. So on the one hand, I do not disagree that this is a very sort of faithful, right? It's a very realistic novel. It's a realist novel. It's a very faithful kind of rendering of um, of this society. But there's so much mocking at the same time in his tone, even in the short stories in Miguel Street. You know, I remember yeah. I've read Miguel Street many, many times. I remember reading it first as a, a schoolgirl in Trinidad and, you know, we were laughing because we recognized these characters, but he was making us laugh at ourselves in a way that was not um it was not humorous, right? He sort of it, he 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 we he holds the, the, the sort of Caribbean subject up to ridicule. Um I think there's a there's another way to do that, and while your every writing venture doesn't have to be ennobling, right? You get to write the story you want to write. I think he's so he being Naipaul is so continuously um, um, not just disrespectful, just dismissive, right? Of of the Caribbean, of Caribbean life uh, as anything as anything worthy. Right, that I don't know. Suddenly, we're talking more about Naipaul than we are about right. Walcott. But that's what Walcott—that's what Walcott didn't do. Well, I would say so. For one thing, Naipaul is firmly a Western secular writer of a particular type. Right? Uh, uh, He's a top-hatted English toff. And we built up empires. We stole countries. That's what you do. That's how you build an empire. We stole countries with the cunning use of flags. Yeah. <laughs> you just sail around the world and stick a flag in. I claim India for Britain. And they go, you can't claim us, we live here. <laughs> 500 million of us. Do you have a flag? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's in particular right. to the English tough type. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Walcott <laughs> has a, I mean, sort of religious or spiritual sensibility um, that he grounds in a particular place. And, you know, I think Naipaul, you know, Naipaul later has these speeches that he gives about universal culture, right? Which is, you know, to him, universal culture is a particular form of intellectual Western culture that is distinct. And so I think, you know, Naipaul will when he's writing about these places, we'll adopt, you know, what he would probably think of as an objective, you know, mm-hmm. view from nowhere perspective, but is actually like a, you know, very partic- particularly culturally grounded um, yeah. uh, sensibility that, um, you know, is sort of uh, hard, uh, cynical, 
yeah. Western material, you know, material, <laughs> material reductionism, right? Like, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Walcott, for one, I think, um, has a sense of, I mean, he's, he's, he's not fully rooted, right? Um, he sort of, you know, is, is, insists on sort of his being stepping apart, right? And that's that image of the, you know, the the poet carrying entire cultures in his head, unencumbered. He's writing about himself. I mean, you know, you were saying, like, right. this is him in 1974 being like, you know, how does great poetry that is in a line with, you know, the great canon mm-hmm. of, you know, poets, I'm not, you know, not even talking about the canonical poets of the 20th century, but like, where do we stand in relation to the whole sweep of human history? Right. Um, right. How, how are you going to read and understand that work when it comes from the Caribbean? Here, I'm going to show you how, and it happens yeah. to be what I'm doing. Um, and, uh, and that, um, and so it's this sort of, this sense of himself within a, artistic tradition, right, which he sees as very distinct from being within a sort of historical progression. Right. Um, but the, it's the spiritual component And also. the spiritual component, yeah, this is what I said, like, the spiritual component is so, and, and he sort of oscillates between the between the two. There's a bit, uh, the, the bounty, which is just, you know, if you want, like, a, it's not too long, um, uh, but it's sort of long enough where you can really see Walcott, you know, at his developing a really rich, complicated, interesting idea with his absolute beauty. It's this ode to his, it's this elegy for his mother's death. It's this rumination on Isaiah and Dante and, and John Clare, the English romantic poet Mm -hmm. of, uh, of nature. And like, um, the sort of spiritual power of the physical beauty of the world, as well as like the sense that that is, comes with it, a sense of sort of decay and loss. Um, and, you know, after a section where he talks about his, his mother's faith, um, you know, he's raised Methodist, I believe though, uh, where he grew up was a Catholic, um, uh, was, you know, mostly Catholic on, on, on his island. Um, uh, there's a bit where he says, uh, after his mother's death, I half expect to see you no longer then more than half, almost never or never then there I've said it, but felt something less than final at the edge of your grave. And there's that sort of like, you know, sort of oscillation um, and this kind of power that comes when that sort of resurgent sort of spiritual sensibility comes but comes up. And it comes up, I think, most clearly in his relationship to the natural world and when people are acting in, in relationship to it. And I think that yeah. is something that you don't ever see in Naipaul. Sit among the sea-eaten boulders and let the night wind sweep the terraces of the sea. This is the right light, this pewter shine on the water, not the carnage of clouds, not the expected wonder of self-igniting truth and oracular rains, but these shallows as gentle as the voice of your daughter, while the gods fade like thunder in the rattling mountains. Let me. I'll say one more thing about Naipaul, and then I, I will. Uh, I'll move off him for good. But the the difference to me in the approach to history 
is clarifying in part because people who uh, listeners who want to read this Walcott essay, which I would highly recommend they do, I think will find that it's a challenging essay. And so and I think it's challenging in part because it's not written for a general audience in my sense of it. And and to like, sort of what was useful for me in reading it was keying in on certain uh, certain sort of key passages and the ademic ademic sense which is you mm-hmm. know a, a word derivative of adam the first man is this central concept in walcott's approach to what this new poetic new world sense of history should be yeah. right now paul would never describe an adamic view of history or of time because Naipaul is fundamentally despite his belief in you know western civilization as such it's deeply nihilistic actually or nihilistic is too strong excuse mm-hmm. me deeply amoral in the sense that <laughs> it's a view of history as being uh, events as being cast by these currents of historical force that you know it's a kind of cyclical view of history in which forces far greater than the individual or even of the particular culture sort of cast these these moments in time and and repeat and and certain uh forces are uh are going to win out power chief among them right there is a sense a a not so subtle veneration of power and that runs through basically yeah. everything Naipaul writes and at his yeah. best Naipaul can command a kind of literary empathy there Naipaul can be empathetic in a literary sense but his empathy has a, even an amoral quality and it's the empathy of sort of honest careful observation what i get mm-hmm. from the walcott is you know uh, not that sort of amoral approach to history, but in fact, a kind of a, a sense of uh, sort of spiritual, poetic spiritual. I don't, you know, I don't know how religious he was in his later life, but a sort of poetic spiritual sense of mission in regard to history. That the job of the this poet in approaching history is to reconcile these forces of the past with the promise of the new world and to create something new worthy of the greatest achievements of the past and yet not bound to them in any kind of imitative or idolatrous way uh yeah Yeah. that's what i get and and when i use the word religious i'm not saying he was Religious, right? Because I, I don't, I don't. But he did grow up Methodist. He grew up Methodist, uh, and he yeah. sounded like that had some sort of influence. He on had his a early definite life. sort of spiritual sensibility, mm-hmm. right? Which is, you know, different from necessarily going to right to mass. All right. So the third section, the third, the third section of the of the essay, sort of traces what he thinks of as these kind of failed paths, right? Um, where. Uh, you know, how do you sort of deal with this kind of historical problem? Um, and, you know, he criticizes uh, the kind of exchange of recrimination and contrition. Uh, and here, colonial literature is most pietistic, for it can accuse great art of feudalism and excuse poor art of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not 
sort of interested in those kind of more directly didactic points. And instead, what he fixates on is a uh, – quotes Neruda and then says, It is this awe of the numinous, this elemental privilege of naming the new world, which annihilates history and our great poets, in elation common to all of them, whether they aligned by heritage to Crusoe and Prospero or to Friday and Caliban. They reject ethnic ancestry for faith in elemental man. Right? Um, yeah. And that is that right. So, so in terms of, you know, I feel like you have the option when you decide to be a writer or you're a poet or you're an artist, like you, you get to define the, the, for, for want of a better word, right? Your, your muse, you get to define and decide what you want to write about, what you, what your topic, what your subject, right? Will be, um, I do, agree with him. I do very, very much agree with him. Even as someone who professes to have a kind of ancestral, feel a kind of ancestral, like, loss, right? But there's a part of me that feels that, but there's a part of me that also knows, like, that is gone, right? That is not coming back. I do feel that yearning, but I love, right, right before that section you read where he says, right, in time the slave surrendered to amnesia, that amnesia is the true history of the new world, right? That you had to have, in you know, that you have to have the sort of new starting point because the thing that, that again, the thing that you're venerating or the thing that you are are wishing for, first of all, it's it's gone. You didn't have access to it. You're not even quite sure what you're asking for, so be careful, right? Um, I think. I love the idea of a, a new starting point, right? The new world, the idea that. It's it's this is where this is where it begins for for the artist. Yeah. Can all right, as I, long as we're on that section, can I can we just finish that part because you both read from it, <laughs> and there, there the okay. way that ends also is uh, like daring, and he says. Um, so this is right after the part that uh, Victoria read about the slave surrendering to amnesia. He writes. Um, these recriminations exchanged, the contrition of the master replaces the vengeance of the slave. And here, colonial lit- literature is most pietistic, for it can accuse great art of feudalism and excuse poor art as suffering. To radical yeah. poets, poetry seems the homage of resignation and essential fatalism. But it is not the pressure of the past which torments great poets, but the weight of the present. Um, I don't even know that I have anything to add to that. I just felt it was worth <laughs> reading, to be honest with you. No, it's um, it's 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 profound in its ability to call out a uh, truth, and I think um, right, this this idea of of it can accuse great art of feudalism and excuse poor art as suffering. You know, I bet you there are a lot of people who wanted to give him a lot of shit for that, right? I'm sure. So I mean, I'm sure. sure today, you, right? Do you, cuss, yeah. do, do you cuss in your podcast? Like, ooh, sorry. No, 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 no. Go <laughs> ahead. We encourage okay. uh, absolute freedom for our guests. <laughs> well, well, wait, that's right. There are no uh, advertisers. Um, this is, you know... This, I think this is, is profound, the idea of, you know, great art of feudalism and excuse poor art as, as, as suffering. Um, there is a, there should be a, an accountability to producing 
good work. And we have to, I mean, how we have to be able to, so to, 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 to decide or judge. I feel like I'm going in, I'm going on some boggy ground right now. Right. But no, no, I think this is interesting. Well, but he's making, he's making a bold claim by saying, you know, not just because you write of the suffering means that you've written a, a, a great poem, not because you've, you know, you've addressed an historical truth here means that you've created art. Um, so now I backpedal and I say, well, maybe not everyone was afforded the same sort of like classical education or had the same, you know, um, um, uh, uh, benefits or, or opportunities that he had that does not deny that person the right to be a writer or to express their truth. But at the same time that also, right, it doesn't mean that that art can't be critiqued. That's yeah. all. There's no way that was uncontroversial in 1974 either. I mean, I know we're in a different era, but even in 74, he must have gotten flack for that, right? Oh, I mean, and also for him pairing. I mean, we'll get to his pairing St. John. Yeah, the the St. John John Purse. But, yeah, yeah, and it is, I mean, there's... (laughs) You see that, I mean, just sort of constantly today where there's work that you would want want to be better. And, and, you know, we, we did a previous podcast on James Baldwin's everybody's protest novel. Um, and like the, the sort of good liberal going to Baldwin about like the protest novel, like as long as works like this are produced, everything's going to be okay. And Baldwin sort of dismissing it is basically sentimental trash that, that is sort of flattering in its own way. Um, but, uh, this, this leads him to a, a sort of trap that he wants to avoid because what he doesn't want to say is that you just forget the past, right? You don't want, you don't want to revive the myth of the noble savage, right? Right. Um, because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't believe in that. He doesn't, um, you know, and, and, uh, and at the same time, uh, and, and you don't want to, there's a great line in here about existentialism, uh, where he says, this is Mm -hmm. not existentialism. Adamic, elemental man cannot be existential. His first impulse is not self-indulgence, but awe. And, and existentialism <laughs> is simply the myth of the noble savage gone Baroque. I thought, yeah, that, that is sort of <laughs> devastating, actually. I, I like, looked over my shoulders when I read that. Right? It, yeah, yeah, it's, I don't know. I didn't feel great about myself after I read that, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it brings to mind, like, uh, Clive James writing of Sartre that his existentialism w- was very convenient for a man who was not as brave as he pretended to be during uh, the Second uh, World War. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, was, uh, yeah. Charles Williford, who's one of my favorite writers, uh, had a line somewhere where he said that you know existentialism was a basically what was it a, a reasonable philosophy for a modern urban man to um, to adopt, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the myth of the noble savage gone baroque is wow. That that is not inaccurate and pretty damning, right? And also the sense that the first impulse should right. be awe rather than navel gazing. Um, yeah. Uh, or sort of self-indulgent questioning about, you know, why, you know, it's actually like it doesn't answer itself, right? Like, why should you ponder? The, the meaning of existence before you revere existence. It's actually right. not obvious that you should, you know? Like, um, 
for somebody like me, it's easy to slip into a mode where I, I think that that is self-evident, but then you read something like that, you know, and it's like a sort of good non-contemptuous insult will do that, or like a sort of withering critique yeah. as opposed to a contemptuous insult will do that. It'll make you realize that the thing you've taken to be self-evident could is anything right. but self-evident, and that line in particular um, did that for me. So... Uh, he then <laughs> he then uh distinguishes he takes a shot at at like ideas of pop progress um and he uh distinguishes between tradition and history right um mm-hmm. and so for him tradition actually something that sort of reminds me of like vico uh the Italian, um, the new science, yeah, new science, a uh, strange, mm. um, uh, sort of at the birth of like cultural philosophy, I guess. Is a great kind of, uh, Renaissance philosopher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, historical philosopher. Uh, yeah. And the idea of like sort of, um, greatness as, you know, in, in this sort of like enlightenment and sort of post Renaissance ideas of, of what great art is, it's not imitation that like each culture is supposed to produce its own sort of unique mm-hmm. works of art. And for him, um, uh, he's talking about sort of writers. And I think there's almost, uh, 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 he might, you know, sort of, this could be in some ways talking about the sort of Naipaul inflected writer, sort of, um, writers of the archipelago who contemplate only the shipwreck of the new world, right? And the new world offers not elation, but cynicism, a despair at the vices of the old, which they must feel must be repeated. Their malaise is an oceanic nostalgia for the older culture and a mel- melancholy at the new. And this can go as deep as a rejection of the untamed landscape, a yearning for ruins to such writers. Yeah. The death of civilization is architectural, not spiritual, but he says, they believe in the responsibility of tradition, but what they are in awe of is not tradition, which is alert, alive, simultaneous, but history. And the same is true of the new magnifiers of Africa, for these are deepest yeah. losses of the old gods, right? And so it's like, this is again where he sort of ties the, you know, the sort of radicals to the classicists, where it's this sort of nostalgia for something past and dead or not even truly existing in the way that you imagined it versus the living alert um, kind of simultaneous tradition which incorporates that sort of history in its body. So I don't know. I think you have read um, the Antilles Fragments of Epic Memory, yes. his um, noble lecture. And if you remember, that essay starts out with a visit to the uh, village of Felicity where the Indian residents are doing an annual um, uh, production of the Ramayana. Yeah. And he's there with some guests, and he says he's very tempted, and he checks himself, right? But initially he's tempted to see this as, um, uh, as, as memory, as trying to, like, recreate a past, as trying. And then he realizes, no, 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 that's, that's the poet's eye, or that's my eye, right? If I actually look at the people who are here, right, they are simply in the moment and having their celebration and their sort of imperfect recall, right? It's not, it's not a, it's not a, 
an ability to say, oh, we have this this sort of cultural background and we're going to recreate the thing exactly as it was for our ancestors, right? That it has in fact evolved and this is the celebration that we're having today, right? And 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 there's no sort of yearning for any great past. There's no sort of, of melancholy or loss that we have you know, that we are actually in this moment, right, having this celebration. Yeah. So, and there's a line from that about the the the, the vase. Right. He says, uh, break a vase and the hand that assembles the pieces, I think, together, yeah. right, does so more lovingly than when it was, that, that held it when it was whole? Or yeah. whole? Or, the, or, or the love that reassembles the pieces is greater than the love which took it for granted when it was whole, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so then he's he sides with that sort of living tradition and uh, <laughs> and then he moves into, in the the fourth section, T.S. Eliot's notion of the culture of a people as being the incarnation of its religion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in Yeah, this is an important section. Yeah, notes on a culture. Um, and so he thinks there's sort of this inevitable failure if you're trying to rest too much of your art on um, politics or history and not a lived faith. And he, ne- and he means that in a sort of more kind of abstract... Not, you know, I don't think he he a, a sort of open ended way. Um, but you know, I remember Jake when we were discussing hu- the humanist manifestos. You know, you're like, there's there's no eros to this, right? Ultimately, they are only manifestations of praise. So that a lot of the base of Caribbean writing comes from a thing inherited from a tribal inheritance that comes from religion. And then he asks, like, what do we, what is the faith? And he says, there are three questions. You know, whether the religion taught to the black slave has been absorbed as belief, whether it's been altered in this absorption, um, and whether wholly absorbed or absorbed and altered, it must now be rejected. In other terms, can an African culture exist except on the level of polemical art or politics without an African religion? And if so, which African religions? Okay. Yeah. And he uh, then goes on this sort of... uh, push uh, uh, against a sort of um, polemical reading where you're just fixated on the politics, the history of degradation, right? Uh, If all the paraphernalia of degradation and cruelty which we exhibit is history and not as masochism, as if the ovens of Auschwitz and Hiroshima were the temples of the race, right? And it's just like, you know, if we're not not alert to the alive sort of living tradition... um, You know, and instead are focusing on this sort of history of pain, what do we have and how, you know, how does that actually reduce us? Um, Can you write the epic that only deals with that? Um, And... He ultimately says no and then moves on. No. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, no, morbidity is the inevitable result, right? Right. That is the tone of any literature. He's like, no, you just, you can't, moving right along. Like, we've we've answered that question. And he says that the epic has already been written and it's, it is written in the mouths of the tribe, a tribe which had courageously yielded its history. And then he goes into this analysis of Christianity and the way that slaves took it and used it. And he's sort of, I think in some ways dealing with like Fanon and this notion of like Christianity is this sort of push mm-hmm. to passivity. Um, right. But uh, 
he argues that it's not, that the captured warrior and the tribal poet had chosen the very battleground which the captor proposed, the soul. What was captured from the capture was his god, for the subject African had come to the new world with an elemental in intimacy with nature, with a profounder terror of blasphemy than the exhausted, hypocritical Christian. He understood too quickly the Christian rituals of a whipped, tortured, and murdered redeemer, right? And so he sees the beginning of this tradition in, in the co-option of the captor's religion, right? And then he traces that through two seemingly different poets, right? Um, well, you know, be before you go on, can I just say yeah. that after I read this, I felt as if I finally had my answer for why why the black church, why, why because of course, you know, so I, I have a, a spouse who is an atheist and I have children who identify as atheists. And I'm like, where did you guys come from? Right? <laughs> like, how? What? Like, you know, but I, there's a part of me, right? So I'm not atheist, but there's always been a part of me that sort of questioned, um, in particular, right, blacks, whether in the Caribbean or in the U.S., this sort of... Um, their, their Christianity, their faith in God, their belief in God. I just thought, you know, it's exactly the, you know, the, the master's coming with the whip in one hand and the Bible in one hand, and how have you used this sort of like, you know, how, how have you swallowed this doctrine whole? And suddenly I read this and I thought, well, oh, this makes, this is probably the best explanation I have ever had for why Christianity took hold in you know, previously enslaved populations because they understood, right? Where, where is that, Phil? Let's just see that again. The, the bit where you, you read in, it's about the... Oh, um, the what the was captured from the captor was his god for the subject African yeah, come to the new world, yeah. Is that still in section four? This is in section five. Oh, uh, you've moved on. Okay, yeah. Right? You know, it, it, it ends with, but the slave had wrested God from his captor. And I thought, well, I wrote next to it, that's a nice way to explain it. But also, it, it, it's bigger than a nice way to explain it. It's, it's pretty profound for me. I thought, well, this makes sense because, I, could, I mean, it's, it's something I've grappled with, right, for as long as I've grappled with the idea of, of, of growing up with religion and, you know, but going to church and being like, what are they saying? Am I really buying this? Like, I am not. But at the same time, finding comfort and finding, right, getting, you know, the, the good parts of religion, getting the, the sort of good, you know, um, that's it, the good, the good parts of it. And I just thought this, this really nicely, I pity it's been written since 1974 and I'm just coming to it now, but I really like this sort of explanation of why Christianity took such a, a deep root in, especially in, in, in Africa, right, the role of the black church in African-American um, history just was and remains pivotal. Yeah. And, and, and it just becomes tremendously powerful um, in the ways that those sort of symbols and ideas get get used it's not an accident that the you know the the american black church i don't know as much about the uh religious situation in the caribbean but the black church tradition in america draws very heavily from the hebrew bible in particular right yeah. and the the story of exodus for obvious reasons mm -hmm. has special resonances um 
uh, you know, so in like in that spirit of uh, kind of generative religion and of taking the captors from the gods, there's a way in which the symbolism, the, the religious tradition is not simply received passively. Yeah. You know, it's reinvented. Yeah. Reinvented might be the wrong word, but it's not it, – it, the black church doesn't receive the religion right. passively. It, it reinvests – Co-ops. Co-ops. Co-ops <laughs> and, and, and sort of reconsecrates, right? Maybe yeah. take something yeah. which has been profaned by the way it was delivered. The exhausted hypocritical Christian, yeah. And re-sacralizes yeah. <laughs> it by, by uh, you know – so, so then he moves to these two poets, St. John Purse, born and re- reared until late adolescence in Guadalupe, and Amy Césaire, the Martiniquean. Both have the colonial experience of language, one from privilege, the other from deprivation. Let it not be important for now that one is white, the other black, mm-hmm. right? And, then, you know, one's conservative, one's revolutionary, and yet he describes them as having a shared armature. The sources of their diction is both ancient and contemporary. The Bible and the tribal ode, as well as French surrealist poetry, the proletarian hymns of Whitman, and the oral or written legends of other civilizations. For Perse, the East and the Mediterranean, for Césaire, the Hebraic Mediterranean in Africa. And he sees them, they're writing in French, as, yes, it is indeed in their use of the language, you know, and this is something that, like, Jamaica Kincaid will later sort of reject, the sort of, like, how do you... How do you curse the colonists in their own language because their language is right. designed to flatter them? But um, he says, you know, you, like, yes, you see the march of empire in their verses, but it is the language which is the empire, and great poets are not its vassals, but its princes. Um, this is, there's a lot here. We haven't even talked about Ted Hughes and some of the other <laughs> stuff, but I think we do. Right, right, right. You've got to skip over some of We've it. We've got to but... skip over some of it. And, <laughs> I, you know, Phil, Phil just talked about this comparison between uh, these two poets, which comes in the fifth section and is actually very sort of, that is a dense part of a dense essay with many other dense yeah. parts and is worth further examination but in order to um in order to move on to new generative possibilities in the new world i think we need to to try and bring some sort of conclusion here and i i don't know um you know so the the thing we do victoria as a kind of exercise is we try and talk about what would it be like to apply this in the real world and one of the things that you know that occurs to me and this is broad admittedly but when i think about how would this apply one of the things that occurs to me immediately is it would apply first of all on the level of language and there's a part of the essay where walcott makes the point that the sort of cynical cosmopolitan Radical rejections of tradition will uh, will sort of privilege novelty and form, right? So I'm not just talking mm-hmm. about mere novelty, but if you were trying to operate in this Adamic, Adamic mode that Walcott is describing, if you were trying to like really fully occupy this position of the new world, you would have to 
do that on the level of language, in part for what I think reasons Phil was just citing that uh, Jamaica Kincaid talked about, that you need to develop a new language with new praises and new curses, you know, new new ways of reflecting what is new. And he talks about Whitman at one point, and clearly that's part of what what Whitman is trying to do. In another way, it's part of what Neruda is trying to do. And certainly Mm -hmm. Borges, on a kind of stylistic level, is trying to do this. Um, But it brings me back to the point, I think maybe inevitably, that this seems to me a manifesto for poets or a poetic manifesto before it's anything else, which is not to say that it's not anything else. I don't think it is only that necessarily, but at its core, that's how I understand it. And, but I, I, I think that it's also about situating yourself within a problem that goes beyond poets, right? Like how do you, because it's about how you perceive the world and how you perceive history, right? He doesn't, he doesn't believe in sort of myths of progress. There's a great bit in the, um, in the, the Schooner flight um, where he says, progress is something to ask Caribs about. They kill them by the millions. Until I see definite signs that mankind change, Vince, I ain't want to hear. Progress is history's dirty joke, right? But at the same time, it's not pure repudiation that um, – you know, there's, towards the end of the essay, he says, I write my own world because I had no, do- no doubt that it was mine, that it was given to me by God, not by history, right. with my gift. Yeah. And it's like all of it, all right? And there's a, there's a bit where he talks about the sort of – I'll, I'll probably just end just reading the very end of the, the essay because it's amazing, but um, – and also a strong statement. Um, but that it's like <sighs> – the the poet the individual if you take this seriously you you take it all in you without allowing yourself to be captured by the sort of nostalgias for or recriminations of the past um alert to sort of the living tradition within a specific place and the beauty of the world and elation in it while still cognizant of sort of all the kind of moral complications of history. Um, yeah. And uh, the end of the, uh, the end of the essay says, I accept this archipelago of the Americas. I say to the ancestor who sold me and to the ancestor who bought me, I have no father. I want no such father. Although I can understand you, black ghost, white ghost, when you both whisper history. For if I attempt to forgive you both, I am falling into your idea of history, which justifies and explains and expiates, and it is not mine to forgive. My memory cannot summon any filial love, since your features are anonymous and erased, and I have no wish and no power to pardon. Uh, Skip ahead. But to you, inwardly forgiven grandfathers, I, like the more honest of my race, give a strange thanks. I give the strange and bitter and yet ennobling thanks for the monumental groaning and soldering of two great worlds like the halves of a fruit seamed by its own bitter juice that exiled you, that exiled from your own Edens, you have placed me in the wonder of another. And that was my inheritance and your gift. Yeah, no, it it really is. It really is a, a sort of I want to say, is it seamless or a seamed coming together, right? A, se- a sort of seamed coming together mm. uh, 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 or conception of what we have been handed 
in this new world. This is what you've been handed. You know, when he talks about the anonymity of the faces, it's what I, you know, those, those, that is, it's gone. It, it was never visible to us. It's, it's, it's so long gone, right? To sort of reach back to it. You don't, you know, you're grasping blindly, right? You're, you're recreating its history as myth, right? Yeah. As he says, so this idea of, you know, it, it's a peculiar gift, but it's the gift that we, it's the gift that you've been given. And it's, it, you know, for, in, in, in particular, for the, the, the poet, for the writer, right? This is, this is where you start. This is where you make do. But before, so, so I like that as an ending. But what I like more after um, Jake, so Jake said that usually what, what you do is you find a way, right, that make a sort of like real world application. I just go back a little bit where, where he writes the liberal warms to the speech of the ghetto in a way quite contemptible to the poet. For the benignity of the liberal critic perpetuates the sociological conditions of that speech, despite his access to anger. I love that. Mm. I just thought, ooh, who's he talking to? Are you talking to some Democrats? No. Um, <laughs> right, but I, I love... I love that because it's about this, you know, the, the glorification of the, you know, the, the real or something. Well, it's not that you need to glorify, right? And th this actually, to me, kind of removed it from the, the realm of poetry and gave it a very real world contemporary application. There's a lesson in here, right, to be read by, by whomever, if you're a participant in, in the world, in, in our current political circumstance in the country right now, right? This idea of, you know, I, I don't know, it's, what's his name? It reminded me of, um, oh gosh, the politician Mitt Romney going into the some neighborhood and singing Who Let the Dogs Out. It's like, no, 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 no. This is not, this is not, right? This is not respect or, or helping a situation or or progress, right? Basically what you're doing is, is, is just helping people stay trapped in their own limited circumstances, really. Yeah. While venerating it as something that's like, you know, the true or the real or the, I don't know. Right. Yeah. So we should probably move on to Mavis Gallant. <laughs> uh, Gallant. Um, we could probably continue talking about this essay for a long, long time, but uh, oh, we've yeah. already gone on for... A while, and um, uh, Glant's a great writer, Canadian writer who spent a lot of time as an expat. Uh, this story, The Late Homecomer, is collected in her Paris stories, um, though it is about Germany. Um, it is a short story about a um, child soldier uh, who had fought for Germany in World Member War II. Member of the Hitler Youth. Member of the Hitler Youth. Yeah. Um, and, well, the first sentence sets it up quite well. Uh, when I came back to Berlin out of captivity in the spring of 1950, I discovered I had a stepfather. <laughs> and what has happened is um, he's imprisoned. Uh, you know, he's a prisoner of war. Um, because he's a child, he's was supposed to be set free to go home immediately, but for administrative reasons, that doesn't happen. And then there's, um, he ends up stuck as a prisoner of war for much longer than he was supposed to. Uh, and uh, the story is him coming home, seeing his mother, 
being a somewhat awkward presence. Discovering in, yeah. unexpectedly that his mother, his father died when he was young. Uh, we come to understand, like midway through the story, that his father was stabbed to death when he was trying to take down Nazi right. posters. Anti-war protester. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Stabbed to death as a, an anti-Nazi protester, essentially. And his mother is remarried, so he comes back from this long absence to a mother he doesn't quite recognize anymore, not least of all because she has attached herself to a stepfather who he has no ability to recognize because he's only meeting him for the first time upon his return. Mm -hmm. And the title of the story, The Late Homecomer, I take it from the story was an actual phrase used to refer to uh, German mm -hmm. prisoners of war coming back to Germany after uh, periods of extended absence, I guess not immediately after the war, but uh, sometime later after their uh, prison sentences or other forms of, you know, indentured, uh, yeah. penal, whatever. Um, what did you think, Victoria? So this is a... Um I really, my students, I really, really like this story. This is this is such a writer's story. Yeah, the story doesn't have yeah, one yeah. false step in it. Um, just there's there's so many layers to it in the way, you know. There's not to jump into the middle, and I won't go into the details, so we actually can get to the middle of it. But she does something with time, right? She overlaps the past with the present, and she does that seamlessly and she reveals right the, the 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 progress of the story right the way we learn that his father was a uh, an anti-nazi protester right that comes later in the story even as we've already learned that the father had died right and he'd been yeah. stabbed to death but i think we're not told immediately like you know why he was stabbed to death so i love the way the story is yeah. just the way time is layered over the the, the the past and the present that he's in and the future that he is thinking about. A future that, yeah, that, that is revealed to us, but that we never arrive at, that, the, right. you know, the narration uh, projects forward. <laughs> His first person, the first person narration, no, you know, is situated in the future in a future that we never arrive at. I mean, yeah, the economy of the storytelling and the efficiency of the storytelling, because that sort of thing, I mean, don't let Victoria kid you. That, like, it sounds easy to do that, <laughs> but to do oh, it's it... it's not in, easy. <laughs> oh, 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 to do it in such a way that the reader is not feeling jolted out of the right. narrative is foot fantastically difficult and more difficult sort of the more uh detail you've already accumulated in the present and yeah. it's done here without you know there's no ripple at all in time it's all yeah. fluid you you're you're carried easily from one to the other uh, the storytelling yeah. is phenomenal yeah, no, I'm looking at my notes, you know, and at one point, yeah, I just wrote down greatness. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, um, 
and 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 it it just might be you know it's right at the it's not too far into the story where um he he's introduced to the the stepfather and he realizes oh he begins to realize you know some of the changes his mother um has experienced and the stepfather says, you know, basically your, your, your stepmother and I can understand each other because we speak the same dialect. And he gives his mother a look because he'd not grown up speaking dialect, right? He and his brother, he says, we had been made to say bread and friend and tree correctly, right? <laughs> I turned my eyes to my mother, but she looked away. And immediately you understand this is a woman who has made some concessions, yeah. right? Yeah, a yeah, woman yeah, yeah. who has... Who, Who's, she, she, she says it, you know, she comes outright and says it to him later in the story, but basically you ha you're judging me, but you have no idea what I've been through, right? Um, but, but here, you know, we start off with her language, right? That she's, that she's had to, to moderate or modulate her, her language in order to have some sort of, of security in a very um, unsettled time. Let me ask you, Phil. Yeah. So, you know, this is a fairly audacious pairing, right? <laughs> it, it is, in the sense that, um, okay, well, it's audacious in the sense that, you know, sort of why pick a story about uh, sympathetic to a Nazi to go along with um, Walcott. On the other hand, it makes perfect sense in that, <laughs> you know, this, the Walcottian sense of the kind of, uh, the, the burden of history, the, the need to create the, uh, the way in which uh, victim and victimizer are uh, bound together. You know, you could locate all of that here and you could also clearly locate this struggle with time and this struggle mm -hmm. to maintain, you know, in, in some sense, like on, on the narrative level that Victoria was talking about with when you're in the present, when you dip into the past, go into the future, but also the story does very little. There's very little in the story that directly grapples with uh, the war in the sense of the past, right? There's very little in the story that deals with capital H history. It's all despite moving back and forth in the, in the kind of framework of time a bit, it's all very present, actually, well, the, unburdened. The, the, the one right. character who talks about history is the old SS man who's like, I did so much for you during the war and girls used to love me and why right. he's a contemptible character, you know. Um, the, and there's, there's a passage where uh, he says, here, where, would, where it would not be necessary to wear a label because late homecomer was written all over me, I sensed that I was an embarrassment too. My appearance, my survival, my bleeding gums and loose teeth, my chronic dysentery and anemia, my craving for sweets, my reticence with strangers, the cast-off rags I had worn on arrival all said war when everyone wanted peace, captivity when the word was freedom, and dry bread when everyone was thinking jam and butter. And that's actually, there's something universal in that, in the soldier's experience, you know, that not only that I recognize, but one of my favorite writers, Joseph Roth, has all of these stories that uh, center around sort of old soldiers returning home or after their service. And this is all set in, uh, around World War One or before World War One when the the Austrian Habsburg Empire was still around, but um, 
you know, there, there are all these stories of dislocation. There's a great uh, Roth novella, Weights and Measures, where this sergeant major gets out of the army and he sort of still hears the echoes of reverie playing or reveille playing like whatever the Austrian equivalent was. You know, he still he misses the drill and ceremony. He doesn't know how to locate himself back in the civilian world. There's a maybe the, the best of all the Roth novellas, Flight Without End. Um, this guy uh, comes back from the war and, and uh, again is sort of trying to locate himself back in the world and you know the the gallant story requires that you extend that perennial or universal condition to a guy you know was in the hitler youth and frankly if you read it you can't stop yourself from understanding it in those terms right it's um you don't read the story in judgment of him in that way at all he actually he even describes a hitler youth as actually sort of uh at first thinking it saved him, right? Like, he's from a poor right. family. Our uniform, no one will exploit my children, his mother's supposed to have replied. How she was expected yeah. to prevent it, God only knows, for we had no roof of our own and no money, and we ate such food as we were given. Our uniforms saved us. Once we had joined yeah. the Hitler Jugend, even Uncle Gerhardt never dared ask, where are you going or where have you been? My brother was quicker than I. By the time he was 12, he knew he'd been trapped. I was a prisoner. I was yeah. 16 and a prisoner before I understood. Uh, but from our mother's yeah. point of view, we were free, delivered. We would not repeat her life. That was all she wanted. So, so when um, when Jake refers to the the what is it you said Joseph Roth story, the yeah. Yeah. right? It's it's the old old soldiers are coming home, and here we have uh, yeah, right yeah. someone who is just recently a man. He's coming home, and he's twenty one years old, and he is. I mean, he he. I think he's had a kind of profound realization that he's been duped, and he feels. Old, and he is ready to move on and he has an amazingly cynical eye that he didn't possess before so he looks at the old men right he looks at his mother's husband and he looks at willie later on but He's even before we character. get there what but yeah, when he when he first meets Martin, and Martin shows him this picture right of himself on horseback <laughs> right yeah yeah oh it's it's fantastic because Martin is trying to go back to some faded glory that never existed. Yeah. Right? We learn later on that the houses that he or the apartments that he's inherited, he's actually right, those he, he got those through the death of his wife that he actually comes you know, he speaks dialect. He himself yeah. comes from peasant stock, but in this sort of reimagining of what was prior to all the atrocities that they were, well, maybe maybe Martin didn't actively take part in but right, but that they were all sort of complicit in when he sees this sort of like golden past, he sees himself, right? He says here, he held the snapshot at arm's length and squinted at it. My type is very small. This was Martin Tepler once, he said. <laughs> it will be Martin Tepler again, right? Um, he's on a horseback, he's proud, but, but really, he, he had nothing. No, that's perfect. I mean, yeah, that's... All of that, exactly, uh, is sort of, that's the heart of the story, right? Is like this, the innocence and despoilation like, together in one place and, and these attempts to recapture innocence or recapture youth. So you have this guy, 
this young man, as Victoria points out, not an old soldier. You know, he joins the Hitler Youth at 14. So when he returns home, as the story repeatedly has to remind you, he's only 21. You could be forgiven for forgetting the fact that he's only 21 because he's also decrepit, cynical, uh, aged right. past his time. And the whole story is full of imagery of uh, sort of morbidity and innocence and youth together. So without ruining everything, you know, there is a love that ends in suicide. Uh, and, and, and in addition to the romance that ends in suicide, there's another romance, which is between the uh, main character, the protagonist, and his mother that sort of revolves around like the impossibility of recapturing uh, an imagined youth because age and historical exigency have gotten in the way. And then there's this one character who projects into the future, which is this picture of perfect innocence. So the only which which he will you know sort of possess one day, which is this. Uh, a child bride, let us say, um, who we never meet in maturity. Yeah, we, we meet only, her as a toddler, yeah. We meet her as a toddler, but you know that he's going to marry her one day. Right. And so the only... No, not just that he's going to marry her, that he thinks, I should have known I was going to yeah, marry yeah, her. Yeah, right, he right. Meets, it's very yeah. weird. Right. He meets her as a toddler, right. and, he sees, and she's... I, it, she, <laughs> She was all light and sheen. She was the first person, I can even say the first thing I had ever seen that was unflawed without shadow. She was as whole and as innocent as a drop of water, and she was without guilt. Right, without guilt. But And who's full of guilt? she's born after the war. Right. She's, well, it's not just that she's born after the war, right? I mean, like, yes, she's born after the war, but he's not even talking about – he is talking about – I mean, how could he not be talking about war guilt? But yeah. he's also talking about his mother's guilty for yeah. marrying this guy, this this toppler character, right. for aging, for loving somebody other than him, for giving him up to the Hitler youth. I mean – the sort of treatment of he loathes old men. Yeah, the old men owed this right. much to me. The old men in my prison right. camp who would have sold mother and father for an extra ounce of soap, who'd already sold their children for it. The old men who had fouled yep. my idea of women. The old men in the bunkers who had let the girls defend them in Berlin. The old men who had dared to survive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the story is sort of uh, about like what what men demand of women and. Um, Including their own mothers, yeah, and yeah. The, and also um, like the, so. Go ahead, Victoria. Well, I was I was going to say the the um, what the distance does to his relationship with his mother is really amazing. The way he's able to forget, right? The way he's able to forget the sort of um, the deprivations that they lived with. That they, you know, the, the mother is a, a widow. She has the sons. They, you know, she's basically a, a, a servant to his uncle, and then she has to send her sons back. Right? They live in a in an attic or a garret. And when he remembers, when he's writing her these letters before he actually comes home, right? He's writing there. He says, "In captivity, I had longed for her, right, for the lost paradise of her poverty, yeah. where she had belonged entirely to my brother and to me, and we had." Slept with her, yeah. one on yeah. each side. Oh, I read that, and you know, it, it's on page one of the story. You just think the, the we have come to the end of innocence here. Yeah. We have he has 
Absolutely. And I love that, it's, you know, he's, he's three days older than 21, right? He is now, you know, whatever he held on to up until that very, very moment, right, is shattered with this arrival. It's done. Yeah. And then he, towards the very end, you know, one of the things about him is like, he keeps getting sort of, as a prisoner of war, sort of screwed over administratively in these sort of small ways. And there's this way in which, like, if you're him, it's obvious that, you know, like, this is bad. You also understand why nobody is particularly sympathetic to the concerns of a former Nazi soldier, right? Um, yeah, I mean, not that the French who are harboring him or, or uh, have him indentured are necessarily even innocent themselves, but it's like, right. you know. Yeah. And um, which, which the police chief pretty much hints at, right? right when he right, says, right, you know, right. he's like, why don't you just run away? Like, you know, you are a, a reminder not only of the war, but also our culpability, right? Right. right. Um, <laughs> and, and everybody yeah. is a reminder of everybody else's culpability, with the exception of the yeah. toddler, you know? Right. And nobody wants to think about it. By co- one of the lines, from, by common consent, there was no mutual past, right? Yeah. Uh, and Willie, who's this character who's like, kind of always got an angle um, mm-hmm. and uh, asks him the first question anybody asks him, which is, how much money did you make as a prisoner of war? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so Willie, right, w- Willie seems to have a bit part here, but it's not really a bit part at all, right? Yeah. So, um, when, so, okay, so Willie asks him the question about money, and he also, I guess he was too old to go off and fight in the war, but he, right, he has this dream, right, and he's Frank, Franconian, just like um, Martin, and they speak the same dialect, but Willie, Willie is a bit more wily, right, yeah. than, um, than Martin is. So Willie even described the life he would lead now in a quiet town where in sight of a cobbled square with a fountain and an equestrian statue, he planned to open a perfume and cosmetic shop. Mm. People wanted beauty now. And I thought, ooh, yes, people want beauty, but Willie also wants to cover up the stink yeah. of what has happened. I thought, ooh, this is, this is the sort, that's like the perfect detail, right? He wants, and he's, you know, he's not above living above the shop. He doesn't need to go, but, but, but the idea is that he wants, right? He wants a kind of perfect absolution for the sins that he's committed, even as he continues to, right? Mm-hmm. Even as he bought, right, he bought um, jewelry from the Jews who were fleeing and tells them, oh, the best thing to do is forget. Yeah. Right, he's a mercenary. He's a wond- wonderful character to include here. And so, with that note on beauty and the wanting to forget the past and all this stuff, it's sort of, I guess, fairly obvious why I decided to pair it with the Walcott, right? Um, right. And in, in, in Willie, the beauty is very clearly part of a cop-out, right? Um. You mean that he has this daughter, that he's carrying around his daughter? (laughs) Well, Uh, she's almost a prop, right? She's almost a, a, she's propped on his leg like a prop, right? So we're not able to see him in, in, you know, as as corrupt and on the way to becoming corpulent. He uses her almost as a shield. Uh, That's interesting. Uh, Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And, you know, it's, it's one of the stories that, for me, kind of brings these issues to the fore, right? Like, there's this sense that you have, um, and I just talk from like the 
the soldier returning, right, uh, kind of sensibility that's just a kind of constant throughout literature is like the soldier returning and just being like, why aren't you all engaged in the issues that yeah. matter to me, right? Um, and it's also, it's, it's something, it's, it's a sort of sensibility that can curdle too, right? Where it's just this kind of perpetual rage at... Um, inevitably curdles. It inevitably curdles, yeah. At, at like the fact that life continues and people want a bit of beauty, right? That that right. Um, that no no town that the soldiers that a soldier is ever going to return to is going to be a, a town um, fixated on recrimination and confession, right? Uh, or fixated on it, expressions so, so of perpetual gratitude. Let me interrupt gratitude. you here to ask, do you think, think Gallant was a little too on the nose when she wants that area paved over, right? Where the oh. building collapsed and, um, it, you know, maybe she wasn't, right? Because it uh, hasn't been paved over yet. She's saying good. that it should be this, paved this is over. One of those details where like, but they're still sinking in the mud. I mean, they're still <laughs> sinking into the ex-wives, you know, there, in, there's, a, her, there's her like matter. where... <laughs> Topler's ex-wife is dead and underneath the rubble from like a bombing, and it's just like there's, there's like a bunch of people still there. Um, so the stepfather, so the, the stepfather's, stepfather's ex-wife, ex-wife yeah. yeah. Like every detail yeah. is still. Um, and so I, this this story, you know, it's when you read Walcott. Um, there's a way when you read that you can sort of like get into it, like yes, like this is powerful and liberating while also retaining, you know, like he has, you know, the sort of bitter juice that's seeming the two worlds together. He's not forgetting the past, but um, mm-hmm. it's this sort of boldly stepping out. This story, because it the history is so much more present, it's like right there. It's Nazi yeah. Germany was five years ago, right? Um, it, and then, the, you know, the story ends with him just, imagining how great it would be to be back where he was right. traveling home. Yeah, back where he was, yeah. whatever it is, a day ago. Or, a day ago. Yeah. yeah. How, you know, he, hey, he's been going for hours, right? I mean, right. It's like yeah. A few hours, he wants to be a few hours younger. Yeah, back yeah. when he could still imagine that home would be whatever he thought it would be. And his mother yeah. would be whoever she thought she yeah. would be. And, and back when the world was still promised to him when the when the world was still as it was in his anticipation the world was arranged yeah. around his desires and he gets home and this is the sort of uh eternal condition of the soldier is to find that the disruption of time that occurred when you were gone was no one else's disruption it's a bit like being an astronaut you know uh yeah. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> I, t- I take that back. Uh, they don't. But, they don't. Try, they don't um, break the time. Bar- is there? There's no time bar. <laughs> but but you know the thing like uh, traveling outer space, and you know it. It feels like uh, ten minutes to you, and it's been a hundred years or whatever. But you know, yeah. you, you leave and you expect the. Uh, you expect that in part, it, as a reward for your sacrifice. That the world will have uh, made itself amenable to your desires, and and right. 
across the gamut of desires, sexual desires, maternal affection, material reward, you know, everything should have been waiting for you. And he gets home and his mother's married to some creep who's like, you know, (laughs) uh, like some grubby old creep. And, and, and and the, and I mean, there's something tragic, right. In the sense that the best he can hope for, is not before the war, is not a perfect world. It's just 10 minutes ago, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just right. give me the moment before my... The, the, right, like, before this reality before became this a reality, reality, right? When I could still project and, yeah. and, and, and hope that this was, you know, now he's in it, right? Now he has stepped into it and it begins, right? So this is, this is right, this is his less than ideal Adamic moment that Walcott speaks of, Right. He is about to begin anew. Right. And when he looks back at the past, which he has recall of, there's nothing there. You know, there's the there's the hope. Right. There's the hope that he has when he's on the way home. But when he truly examines it. Right. He know. Right. He he knows that he was poor. He knows that, you know, he he had he really had nothing then. Right. And, yeah. and being in captivity, it's almost like a, a period of stasis for him where he thinks, OK, as soon as this is over, as soon as this is over, I can go back and things are going to somehow. Right. So it, it, anything will be better. Well, is it anything will be better than this? Because he makes captivity with a French sound like not too bad. And he falls in <laughs> love. Actually, and he has his he falls in love. the sex scene, by the way, is great. But <laughs> um, you know what occurs to me oh, yeah. is that the. the the child who he doesn't fall in love with, but in whose innocence he projects this, you know, that she'll be his wife. Uh, the, the, the one of the things that I, I have just now done is entertain for a moment that her life is going to be ruined, right? Mm-hmm. Like he is going to be to her the creepy old lecherous man that he recognizes in everybody else and that's implicit and you know you sort of intuit that as you're reading it but if you project forward 20 years or maybe it's probably more like 14 years or something right um this scene replays um and he'll have her catering to him the way his mother was Conditioned to cater to the men around her, and well, the way that he expects women in general to be objects can, for him. Like, can we in, be a little more? Can we be a little more optimistic <laughs> that he might? <laughs> that he that you know that because he sees her as you know untouched and pure and without guilt, that she might you know that she's over sixteen first of all when he marries her, <laughs> and that she brings a little bit of a little bit of 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 light into right a little bit of of relief or light into this existence oh my god do i not see that at all (laughs) there's no way there's no no way just he's only he's only what 18 years older than she is yeah but the fact that he's fetishizing the or or not even fetish whatever fetishizing uh sort of rapturous about the innocence of the toddler he's already in a way, made an idol out of her. Uh, I don't see this ending well for anybody, frankly, but... <laughs> <laughs> because she, she can't be. I mean, she she can't be whatever she, whatever he wants, right? Right. Um, and 
and yeah, all the the women. I mean, the, the one bit of light I would say is that he's at least self-aware to have sort of enough to sort of realize some of the flaws. Like in the sex scene, he just, he says, "I thought she." Where he's gonna. There's this French girl who he falls for, and they have sex. Mm-hmm. I thought she was about to commit the sacrifice of her person, her physical self, and her immortal soul. I had heard the old men talking about women as if women were dirt, but needed for that. Right. I thought she would lie in some way convenient to me and that she would feel nothing but a kind of sorrow which would have made it a pure gift. But there was nothing to ask. Yeah. It was not a gift. It was her decision, not a gift but an adventure. She can't, hadn't come here to look at the harbor, she told me, when I hesitated. Um, yeah, that's so that's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And, and so it's so... Um, it's you know when he says that the 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 old man had fouled his um, expectation of of women women I can't find it but it's it's one of the things he complains about as he's thinking of what he's what he's what he's due at this point right um, so the, the the idea that it would be this kind of again the sacrifice right that she's yeah. offering herself up to him for the sake of his pleasure and that she's like no it's <laughs> <laughs> like are you made of ice like are we doing this or what but um. It's not um ah still still despite that I I I think I think I I choose probably uh naively to hope that the the relationship that he has with you know the eventual relationship that he will have when she is in fact a, a, a older I mean who maybe they wait until she's 21 um <laughs> <laughs> keep pushing it here um but that this does bring him some kind of that it, it 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 delivers some kind of not 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 redemption not peace. I mean, of course, even even hearing myself say it, ah, that he's looking to find a kind of um, what's the word? But he's trying to that he's looking to find himself through her innocence is kind of creepy, right? Shit, maybe yeah. I just shot myself in yeah. the foot here. No comment. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, Hey, well, there's, be there's, a, there's he'll, always he'll be an hope English for... teacher, a French teacher. <laughs> What's that? He's going to be a French teacher, so, yeah. you know, you have a, a job that's gentle and... I, I, think, I, think the, I think that there's a potential for growth in him, we hope. Um, eh, it could always go well. <laughs> the story. The story. It could, always, it could always go well, but you know what? But he does at the end, right? When he decides what he's going to take, and he says, "I would hang on Martin like an octopus." Yeah, 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 yeah. That, yeah, is, yeah. that is that is some ominous foreshadowing yeah, yeah. right there. He had a dependent now, a ravenous, egocentric, late hope coming high school adolescent of twenty one. I want that on a shirt. Like <laughs> that is just. He is like I. I am old. I am old. Right. And he's I saying he refuses to feel to any shame about it, right? Like he's yeah. going to hang on him like an octopus and he won't <laughs> feel bad about it for a second. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it, if oh you God. say you're going to hang on somebody for like an octopus, it's it's pretty clear you don't feel too bad about it, right? <laughs> no, no. It's yeah. eight arms. Nah, it's a great him. image. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that um, we have said a lot here, and um, we've more or less covered how to create new histories through poetry, innocence, guilt, time, um, men, women, love, suicide. I, I think that 
and and leave our listeners with the suggestion that they find someone to hang on like a ravenous egocentric late homecoming <clears throat> high school adolescent <laughs> octopus you should so. be so lucky <laughs> victoria anything this was fantastic thank you um and is there anything you want to plug so uh i'd like to invite you to subscribe to apogee journal my most recent essay was published there earlier this month uh they're a wonderful not-for-profit a uh, formerly print publication that's now gone all digital and their subscription fees just $3 per month to read really quality nonfiction, uh, fiction and poetry by uh, often marginalized voices. So check out Apogee Journal. And what is the name of your most recent essay? Um... Oh, it's called The New Normals, and it was about the time I was pulled over by the Orlando police. And I'm looking at the website. It's apogeejournal.org. And uh, yes. you should all head there and check it out. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>